Have you ever been offended by a gift that you received? Have you ever received a gift, somebody gave you a gift, and you were actually offended by what they gave to you? I know that seems like a funny question because it's a gift after all, and yet we know that it's possible. It is possible to receive a gift that causes offense. Let me give you some common examples as I hope to help you as we think about Black Friday coming up and as you think about buying gifts for your friends and family. Here are some kinds of gifts that you do not want to get for them, okay? The first is the re-gift. Anybody ever experienced a re-gift moment? You gave someone a gift for a birthday, Christmas, a shower of some sort. And in some years, hopefully years, not just months down the road, that same gift that, they, that you gave to them, they then give to you, signifying how much it meant to you that, meant to them that, they, that you would give them this gift. The I don't know you gift gifts, this is a kind of gift. It's a nice gift, maybe a really expensive gift, but it's clear that in giving the gift, the person that gave it has no idea about you or the things that you like. It's like someone saying to me, Jared, I got you a gift certificate to the greatest seafood restaurant in Raleigh. That's awesome. I don't eat that seafood junk. I'm sorry. <laughs> that fish stuff, no, thank you. Or someone coming and saying, Jared, I got you season tickets for, the, for Alabama football. <laughs> awesome. Let's go start a fire with those things. The I just had to get you a gift gift. This is like, uh, you know, you forget about somebody and then the last minute you show up to Walgreens and just try to find anything that makes sense. And then one that I have unfortunately uh, fallen victim to, the gift I got you that's really for me. Uh, years ago in our, in our marriage, when Jordan and I were first married, uh, Keith Urban was coming into town to, to perform in a concert. I'm a big fan of Keith Urban. And so I said to Jordan, hey, uh, Keith Urban's coming right around your birthday. So I'm gonna get you tickets for your birthday. <laughs> and some years later, she said, Jared, you know, um, you like Keith Urban a whole lot more than I do. And uh, don't ever get me a gift like that ever again. <laughs> so those are just some examples to prove that it is possible to give or receive a gift that is offensive. So let's, let's turn that possibility to our conversation or our, about our relationship with the Lord this morning. The Bible tells us that our worship as the people of God, our worship is a gift that we give to God. How we worship the Lord says something about what we believe about him, what we think about him, how we want to honor him. And the Bible also warns us that it is possible to give the gift of our worship in such a way that it offends God. Oftentimes we think that just giving anything to God, he should be happy to receive it, but that's not the way that we should approach offering such a gift to our creator. And so this morning, as we turn to Malachi chapter one, there's a warning for us. Also an encouragement to consider the kinds of gifts we are offering to God in worship and take care that we aren't doing it carelessly. Because careless worship is an offensive gift to God. We wanna give God our best. And so if we come and and God is worthy of our best. And so if we come and we offer him in different hearts, 
If we offer him anything less than our best, we are engaging in a kind of worship that actually causes offense rather than covers offense. And so as we read from this passage this morning, could we just as a, as a church family pray that God would open our hearts, stir our hearts to make sure that every time we gather, we are giving God our best, that we would resist the temptation to fall into habits, traditions that are inconsiderate of who God is and what he has done for us because he is worthy of all. Malachi chapter one. Verses 6 to 14, here's what the word of God says. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, here's that question format in Malachi. You say, how have we despised your name? Well, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But we say, or you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or, or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now you entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us? With such a gift from your hand, How? How will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were anyone among you who would shut the doors, that you would not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept any offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. Its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. And you say, what a weariness this is. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and you bring that as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and devours it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. What a challenging passage of scripture that we have this morning from the prophet Malachi. A challenge that's sobering to the heart and it, it leads me to a prayer that I hope you join me in, that God would never say something like this about Bayleaf Baptist Church. Because here is what's stunning about what God says here in verse 10. A people that he formed for his own good pleasure, God says he finds no pleasure in them. Because of the way they are engaging in worship. And so... Let's try to understand what the Bible's teaching us about the nature of this worship and why it is so offensive to God and the hopes that it will help us discern in our own hearts whether we're offering this kind of worship to God and to guard against it for his, the sake of his holy name and for the sake of our own good as well. Why are the people engaging in careless worship? Let's begin answering that question by first looking at the acts themselves, the acts of careless worship that, is, that are being engaged in by the people of God to help us understand why they're so offensive. 
The people of God have been offering against a gifts to God that do not please him. In fact, they're offering things that do the exact opposite. And while this, is, this section is directed toward the priests, what the priests are doing are reflective of the heart condition of the whole people of God. They have polluted the table of God, verse 7. And they've done that by offering blind, lame, sick, or stolen animals upon the altar, according to verses 8 and 13. Now, why is this offensive? Why is this act an offense to God? Well, in order to understand that, we gotta talk a little bit about the sacrificial system and why these sacrifices were being offered in the first place. The sacrificial system was a gift from God to his people, a gift. And it was instituted in the Old Testament as a means of enabling God's continued presence among his people. You see, from the moment that sin was introduced into the created order. From Genesis 3 onward, a question has existed that must be resolved. How can a holy and righteous God attach himself to an unholy and righteous, unrighteous people? That's a tension, right? How can, an un, how, can, how can a holy and righteous God attach himself to an unholy, unrighteous people? Well, the answer is seen and the establishment of the sacrificial system. That God offers the potential for a covering to cover the sin of his people so that God can forgive the offense and once again dwell with them. The act of sacrifice became a way, God's provision to, to resolve this tension. The sacrifice atoned for or covered the sin, restored the relationship between God and his people. That is, of course, until they sinned again and needed another covering. As the blood of the sacrifice was shed, it allowed for what was seen to be pure to cover the impurity, the pure blood to atone for the sins of the people. This is what is set forth in the law, Leviticus 17, 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is in the blood that makes atonement for life. And it's echoed in the, new, the teaching of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So a gift... And the form of a sacrifice was offered to God that made possible the continuation of this covenant relationship. But the gift had to be appropriate. It had to be worthy of such a covering, such a resolution. It had to meet requirements that God also set forth in his law. Leviticus 22, verses 20 to 22. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable to you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs. If there's anything about this animal that makes you want to vomit, do not bring it before the Lord. You shall not offer it or give it to the Lord as a food offering. And these requirements makes sense. It makes sense for perfection to cover imperfection. It makes sense to want to offer our best to the Lord in order to ask for his forgiveness, in order to ask for his favor. Now, what's happening in Malachi's time? Well, they're not 
offering their best. They're not offering what God has asked of them. They're offering the exact opposite. Again, they are giving gifts to God that add to their offense rather than cover it. Even the gifts of thanksgiving. And there's much for the people of God to give thanks for in this time as they had returned to the land of promise. They weren't truly gifts of gratitude. They were just traditions. They were things they thought they had to do. They were offering crippled sacrifices to help their own spiritual lameness, but that's not a worthy substitute. They were offering blind animals as a covering for their own spiritual blindness, but that offered no remedy according to God's provision. It garnered no favor. They were taking for for granted all the provision God had given them to enjoy his presence as his chosen people, seeking to just do enough to appease him rather than actually honor him. Those are the actions. Now let's also look at the heart. Those are the things that they are doing that are are offensive to God, but why? The second part of our text here. What's the heart behind these actions of careless worship? We don't need to just understand the symptom. We need to understand the disease. See, these people have a heart issue. That's what we saw last week in Malachi chapter 1, the beginning of Malachi 1. The people of God, their hearts are hard and it's showing up in their worship. They don't remember the love that God has shown them. They don't remember the true blessing of God's presence, nor the the lesson he was trying to teach them while they were in exile. And so now, rather than being driven by a heart of gratitude, that he has brought them back and allowed them to rebuild. More than that, not driven by a heart of gratitude that allows them to enjoy his presence in spite of their own sinfulness. They're indifferent. They're indifferent to all that God has done, all that God has provided. Look at verse six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. But you see, how have we despised, you say, how have we despised your name? Verse eight, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi here is is making reference to kind of a double-sided coin that shows up in all relationships of authority. This, This combination of honor and fear. See, when you are a recipient of God's, of, of God's grace, it should cause you to want to honor God because you know, you know what he has saved you from. You know what he is allowing you to have access to in his presence, even though you do not deserve it. There's also this, this counter side to it. As you honor the Lord because of how he has saved you, how he has called you to himself, how he has forgiven you, there's this other piece, this fear. Because the reason you rejoice in these things is because you also know what he could do. You recognize what he hasn't done, but you also recognize what he could do. And so Malachi is saying, you are forgetting. 
You are forgetting who your God is. You're forgetting the provision he has made for you to be in his presence. And you're also forgetting what he needs to forgive you from. So think about it this way. Consider some earthly relationships. Consider the authorities in your your earthly existence and how you treat them. And then now consider why the way you're treating God will be offensive to him. Think about how a son treats his father. Think about how a servant treats his master. Think about how a citizen treats his governor. Those are earthly authorities, right? Authority in the family, authority in a, a work environment, authority in government. Would you ever treat any of them the way that you're treating me? Would you ever show them disrespect in the way that you're, you're disrespecting me? Would you ever take them for granted? Oh, oh, surely the IRS will understand if I don't give them all the money that they think they deserve and that I owe them. I, I'm not gonna just pay them anything. I'm gonna hold that back for myself. Is that how we treat the IRS? No, because we know what they can do. We know they can put us in jail. They know they can, we know they can take our house from us. There are, are real consequences that make us wanna honor what they claim to be owed and to, to, to direct us to not want to hold on to things out of fear, the consequence. And so what Malachi is saying is, what you are doing before the Lord, how you are worshiping is revealing what you truly think about your God. It's revealing what you truly believe about the authority that he has in your life. You would never treat your father this way. You would never treat your master or your boss this way. You would never treat your governor your president this way. So why in the world would you think about treating God in this way? Because you maybe don't believe that he's as great as he really is. Maybe you don't believe that he has this kind of authority in your life. I got news for you. His authority is greater. Whatever, Whatever greatness these people have in your life, they are a mere small reflection of the greater greatness of God. Their greatness doesn't come close to touching the greatness of God. As we saw last week in verse five, this God is the God who is great beyond the borders of Israel. Verse six, he is the Lord of hosts. He is the God who has angel armies at his disposal. He is the God, verse 11, whose name will be great from the rising of the sun to its setting among all nations. Verse 14, this God is our great, greater, greatest king. If there's any name that you should be concerned about honoring, if there's any name that you should actually fear, it should be the name of God. And yet you profane it. And yet you insult it because you don't have a healthy fear or respect for it. You don't actually love your God. You just take for granted that I'll understand, that I'll get over it. But don't mistake my patience, don't mistake my loving kindness for disregard. I am a loving God, but you will not walk all over me. You will not defame my name. I will act if you don't change the way that you act. You see, the people of God forgot something that the sacrificial system wasn't for God. It was for them. He didn't need it. They are the ones who needed it because they need him. 
And then there's this third part to our text I want us to recognize as we think about the dangers of careless worship. God's response. God's response to these acts of careless worship. How did God respond to these offensive gifts? Look at verse 10. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Think about what God's saying there. I wish one of you would just shut the doors. I would rather you not do anything than continue to do what you're doing. It would be better for you if you didn't worship me at all or try to worship me at all then continue to worship me in the way that you are worshiping me. Because as you entreat the favor of God through these half-hearted gifts, it's just bringing more judgment upon you. Verse 14, cursed, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished because I am a great king. My name will be feared among the nations. What a tragic position for the people of God to be in at the end of the Old Testament. We've arrived at a place where God is asking the people he formed for worship, that he called out from among the nations to stop worshiping because the gifts they are offering in their careless worship, they're so offensive. God will. God will protect his name against careless worship. Which brings us to today. So church family, as we hear the warning about careless worship, as we see God's response to gifts, half-hearted gifts that are offered to him by his people, let's, let's receive the word. Let's hear the warning, but also think about positively some ways that we can help ourselves be on guard about slipping into this kind of careless worship that offends God rather than pleases him. And I just want to speak about three ways that, that we can respond to this challenge from Malachi chapter 1 to make sure that when we gather as a people, we are seeking faithful worship, not, not engaging in careless worship. So here's the first way I wanna challenge us in this morning. Firstly, as we gather, and let me just say this, I'm gonna focus on corporate worship as well. There's, a, there's obviously a lot of ways in our lives that we worship God. All of our lives in some ways are an act of worship to God, but I, I wanna specifically speak about corporate worship because I believe that's what's in mind here, the people of God gathering and their collective expression to the Lord. So with that in mind, firstly, every time we gather as a people here at Bayleaf, Let's seek to remember God's provision for our true worship. Let's seek to remember. This will help us guard against careless worship and engage in faithful worship. Let's seek to remember God's provision for true worship. The honor and fear that God demands from his people and deserves from his people comes from a genuine understanding of the blessing of God's presence and the requirements of being able to engage in the blessing of his presence. 
We always have to be mindful of the fact that we, we desire and need to be in the presence of God and then also what it requires of us as sinful, broken people to be in God's presence. Listen, these people should have known that they did not deserve the favor of God. They did not deserve the love that God showed them in choosing them out of all the peoples of the world. They should have seen their sin and how it separated them from their holy and righteous covenant God. And the realization of this weight, the weight of that relational fracture, should have brought immeasurable delight in their hearts when they realized that even though they did not deserve it, even though they deserve to be cast out of the garden forever, even though they, they deserve to receive eternal judgment from God, he made a way. He made a way for them to have their sin covered and to once again be invited into the presence of God, to have their sin covered. Oh my goodness, they should have been delighting and rejoicing in the Lord, especially in this moment in time. Because think about the evidence of the sin that was before them. Think about what they would have seen and smelled in this corporate gathering. Bodies of slain animals, the smell of blood and death and rot all before them, reminding them of the seriousness of their sin and God's provision for their sin. And yet somehow, over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, they had grown numb to it. They had grown numb to the presence of God and the provision that God had made in order for the people to enjoy his presence. Oh, Bayleaf Baptist Church, may we never grow numb, grow numb to what our sin has cost. May we never grow numb to the fact that we are able to meet here as the people of God in the presence of God because of the work of Jesus. Because hear me, we still need and long for the presence of God. We need his favor and blessing. And our sin still creates that separation. That same question still has to be resolved. How can a holy and righteous God attach himself to an unholy, unrighteous people? But praise be to God that we have received a once and for all sacrifice in the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who has come to take away the sins of the world. We don't have to offer sacrifices of atonement any longer. We don't have to smell the, the sting of death or see the blood running because Jesus has finished that work once and for all. So now... When we come and we offer offerings, they are offerings of thanksgiving, honoring what God has done for us, honoring what God has done to allow us to experience his presence, knowing what he could have done, knowing what we deserved. Every time we gather as a people to worship. Our hearts should overflow with praise because of the gospel. As we think about a body that was slain, as we think about blood that was shed, those things become a sweet aroma of the grace of God to us today. 
because of what it enables for us as the people of God. We should never grow tired of remembering the gospel because it's remembering the gospel and the work of Christ that guards against careless worship. How could it be careless? How could we offer half of ourselves? How could we become indifferent when we are reminded over and over and over again of the love with which God has loved us in Christ. That's why our worship gatherings will always be unashamedly gospel-centered and Christ-centered because we need this reminder just as the people of God did then. They needed that reminder of sacrifice. We need the reminder of the cross because although we should be a people characterized by death. We have been given the grace of God and abundant and eternal life. If you feel yourself indifferent as you come into the, the gathered worship space, as you feel yourself distracted, our hope and prayer is that as we declare the gospel, as we make much of Jesus, as we make much of Christ crucified, you would remember the fact that you get to step into the presence of God today because of the work of Jesus. And that's where we're heading, right? Ever since humanity was kicked out of Eden, we've been trying to get, get back. And the only way back to the presence of God, the eternal good presence of God is in Jesus. So let's remember God's provision for true worship in Christ. That will help guard our hearts against careless worship. Secondly, let's recognize and acknowledge God as uniquely worthy of our worship. One of the, the great guards against careless worship is the greatness of God, our God. The God who has revealed himself through his word, through the revelation of the incarnate son, Jesus Christ, and the spirit given witness to Jesus in the written word, the Bible. He is the one true God. He is the creator of all things. He created us for worship and he alone is worthy of our worship. He is uniquely great. He is our great father. He is our great judge. He is our great Lord. And his name will be declared as uniquely great in every corner of the world. And it will be declared as uniquely great for all of eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. And when we gather, as the people of God to worship, here's what we are doing. We are ascribing glory to the name of God. We are declaring his unique greatness. We're not adding to his glory. You can't add to perfection. We're simply expressing our, our own greater and greater realization of the fullness of his glory as God graciously reveals himself to us through the work of the word and the spirit. What a privileged church it is for us to gather together and to hear and to see, to see the revelation of God to us of himself in Christ. To be amazed over and over again by his greatness. So, as we think about the greatness of God, as we think about the, the unique worthiness of God to worship. Let's, let's allow that greatness and, and that glory to focus our hearts 
so that we believe that he is the true one audience of everything that we do in this room. You see, we get into danger when we begin to think that what happens here is more about us than about him. And so we gotta remember, we gotta, we gotta have our hearts arrested by the reality of his greatness to make sure that we don't get distracted on what pleases us rather than what pleases him. See, many churches in America, in many churches in America, corporate worship has led to division. And that's why it's so important for us to talk about this. I've been a part of two different churches, unfortunately, who have had worship wars, who have, who have split, have had significant disagreements on musical worship in particular. And it's a, it's a frightening thing to behold, honestly, to see the people of God speak to each other with language that has no place in the vocabulary of God's people, to fight, to spread things about each other on social media, all because of a style of worship. What a tragic work of the enemy. What a tragic work of the enemy for us to divide over such things when they are meant to unify us an expression of our love and gratitude to God. You see, we made a mistake, I believe, as the American church a few decades ago. And I'm, I'm specifically speaking about the American church because you really don't see this kind of divide or fight over musical styles in other parts of the world. You just don't. It's uniquely American, a uniquely American situation that we have to be on guard against. But here's what happened. We began to fashion worship services to please people in an effort to win them to Christ. So what kind of music can we play to try to get people in the room to help expose them to the gospel? But what we inadvertently did was begin to build worship services over the preferences of people. What's pleasing to us? What would gather people, what would draw people in? And as a result of that, we created an appetite. We embedded the question into, into our people to think about the worship service, first and foremost, as something that is pleasing to me and secondarily as something that is pleasing to God. Or at best, it's mixed. A little bit of both. But we must remember, church family, that what happens in this room primarily is for the glory of God. What, what happens in this room primarily is for him. Now, obviously, we receive a blessing from it. There's a secondary blessing for us in being a part of God's people. We're encouraging each other. We're stirring each other up to love and good works. But the essential question that we must always ask is what is pleasing to him? Because he is uniquely great. He alone is worthy of our worship. He must be our focus because he alone can unify us and hold us together as a people in worship. So let's be on guard. Let's not slip into to careless worship by making what happens in this room more about us than about him. And that leads us to our, our third way of guarding our hearts against careless worship. And that is to offer our best 
always offer our best as a gift to God in worship. Aren't you grateful that you didn't have to bring a goat or a bull with you today? Listen, if my job as a pastor here required me to kill a bunch of animals and burn them and do stuff with the blood and other kind of things that we'll talk about next week, uh, I don't think I could do the job. I just, I, I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful. I, am, I have to be surrounded by death all the time because of the work of Christ. But just because we don't have to bring those offerings doesn't mean that we don't bring any offerings to the Lord. No, in fact, I believe that we should bring more, more of our best to the Lord because of the fact that Jesus has covered our sin once and for all. And so one of the ways that as we think about the work of Christ, the presence we get to delight in and the covering of Christ and the unique greatness of God, one of the ways that we can check our hearts and make sure that we're not engaging in careless worship is to come ready to give God our best. What if every time we gathered, every time we came, we came with an intention? Not to just tick off a box, not to do what, what we've always done, thinking that somehow we're doing God a favor. But rather, we get to come and show display for our brothers and sisters, the benefit of our brothers and sisters, but ultimately for God, our devotion and love to him by giving him our best. Let's come with anticipation every Sunday, knowing that we have an opportunity as we gather around the word of God to meet our creator God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when we gather around the word of God, that God meets us, that his presence meets us here in this room? That's a promise, right? where two or three are gathered in my name, there is who also? God, right? Do you believe that? Did you, did you think about this this morning, that when you came to this room, when you gathered with his people and we opened up the word that God promised us that he would meet us here in a unique way that you can't experience anywhere else? Isn't that mind-blowing to you? that we get to encounter our God here as the people of God. And so as we come into this room with anticipation that God's gonna meet us here, let's honor that presence. Let's, let's tell testimonies. Let's brag on the Lord. Let's speak of his goodness and his faithfulness to one another. Let's, let's make much of him. Let's sing to God. Let's sing our best songs, both new and old, offering the best of our new and old treasures to give expression as a people of our love for God following the command of Matthew 13, 52. Let's declare our continued dependence upon the Lord in corporate prayer. Let's joyfully give of our tithes and our offerings as a people because God deserves our best. And let's trust that through our collective witness of worship, everything we do in this room is an act of worship. And let's trust that as we engage in every act of worship in this room because of our love for God, that God will use the collective testimony of our people to draw people to himself in faith and belief. As they look around and they see a people who are joy-filled because we get the presence of God, committed, sacrificial, forgiving, 
they say, what is different about them? What, what sets them apart? What's unique about them? Because whatever it is, it's clear that I don't have that and I need that. See, our attractiveness to the world for the sake of Christ comes from our distinctiveness. And the more we give ourselves to the Lord, the more that we are set apart and the more that people will be drawn to this God that has set us apart in faith. That's the way it works. That's the way it's supposed to work for the glory of God. So let's, let's ask God to help us not engage in careless worship that leads to indifference and doesn't call people to faith. But let's engage in faithful worship that remembers what God did for us and what he could have done. That remembers his unique greatness and that demands from us our best. Let's think through just for a moment about how we can respond, some ways that we can that we can honor the word proclaimed over us by taking action in our lives to walk in greater faithfulness. And the first word of response I wanna offer is to anyone in this room or watching us online today that would say, I don't know Jesus, I'm not a follower of Christ. Or I don't know where I stand before a holy and righteous God. That question you asked Jared earlier in the sermon is still present in my life. How can a holy and righteous God connect to me? And the reality is there's no way you can connect yourself to God. He's got to come and get you. And the way that he did that is in Jesus. And the Bible tells us if you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus for salvation, you can be saved. Meaning that his body broken, his blood shed can cover your sin and your relationship with God can be restored, not just now, but forever. If you've never given your life to Christ, we'd love to talk with you in just a minute. We'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front to help work through what you think the Spirit is leading you to, to do in response to the Word of God this morning. And then for the rest of us who are in Christ, how's your worship? Are we engaged in the kind of worship that is pleasing to God? Or are we offering worship that's offensive? My guess is, is that many of us are a mixed bag. But there are times when we come in just because of the ritual of it. There are times when we do it, when we get up on a Sunday morning, oh, I wanna sleep in, oh, I wanna do this. And then we come and we get encouraged and we, we get reminded of what God has done for us and we jump all in. But can we just ask God to help us this morning grow in our anticipation of the corporate gathering? grow in our anticipation of what God does in our midst as we gather and the opportunity we have to declare to God as a people our love and appreciation for him, to give him our best because he gave us his best. Let's honor the Lord. Let's fear the Lord in the best possible way as we remember the sacrifice of Christ the unique greatness of God and what he is worthy of, church family. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Consider how God is leading you to respond this morning.
And Father, would you help us? Would you help us respond in a way that allows us to be a more faithful people? Help us to be on guard against careless worship, God. We want everything that happens at this church and our gathering to be glorifying to you, honoring to you. We want to declare to you our gratitude because of what you have done for us in Christ, knowing what you could have done. And yet you sit your son to allow us to enjoy your presence, to honor you as a uniquely great, the uniquely great God, the one true God. Would we come ready to give our best every time we gather? You are worthy of nothing less. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and respond as the Lord leads? Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.